Well, good morning, everyone. Oh, I needed that song. I needed that song. You just got to preach to your soul, don't you? You just got to preach to your soul. Glory be to God the Father. Glory be to God the Son. Glory be to God the Spirit. You just got to preach to yourself, you know? We're talking about it this morning on the way here. Sort of a rainy day. We did a lot yesterday and we're tired. And uh, lots of other things going around in families and in church life that are just very challenging and difficult. And you're prone to, to be a little depressed from time to time, you know, if you're like me. And how do you get out of that? Well, you don't sit there and think about the depression. You don't sit here and think about your weakness. You think about the glory of God. You think about who He is. You think about what He's done. You think about the fact that He's a God full of glory and He's your God. And uh, just singing that song, I was just purposing to preach it to my own soul. And God gave me some strength there just to remember what my life and what your life is all about. <laughs> and it's about Him. It really is. It's about Him. We gather here this morning because we need Him. And, he, and he, uh, he deserves our praise and our focus. And so that's why we gather. That's why we sing. That's why we exist, to glorify God. And, um, and He is worthy. Um, a fresh glimpse of the glory of God <laughs> makes life doable. Makes challenging circumstances doable. Because again, we just we get a glimpse of who he is, the God who, 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 who calls forth the host of the stars by number, given each one their name. That's your God. We have to remember that every day, don't we? Especially in a world that seems like it's coming unglued at every scene. But as we, what was that song? Um, but he, you reign over all in justice and might. That's the truth. It doesn't look like it out there in the world, but it's the truth, isn't it? It's the truth that God reigns. He does reign. And all the nations right now are doing His bidding. All of them serve His purposes. The Lord Jesus Christ is head over all things for the church. Head over all things. Even in Afghanistan, in Kabul right now, the Lord Jesus is head over the church there and head over all things for that little Afghani church. And He's watching over them. And He's empowering them to stay faithful. You make no Make no doubt about it. He is there upholding his people. And that's the one that we're going to talk about this morning. We're going to talk about the Lord Jesus more. And we do because the Lord Jesus was in Peter's mind. When, when Peter thought about Christianity, when he thought about his own life, he, can't, he couldn't help but just talk about Christ. He puts Jesus Christ forth as the one that we taste of that we experience His grace, the one that we come to, the one that, the one that saves our souls, redeems our souls by His blood, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we're going to look at that this morning in chapter 2 of 1 Peter. I'm going to ask the Lord before we read there just that He'll be with us and refresh us. As Peter says in verse 4, as we come to him. <laughs> Let's go to him. Lord Jesus, you're alive. We just profess and, and proclaim this to our own souls, to principalities and powers. Um, and to you, Lord, we know that you are alive. And that you are our great high priest. And that you, Lord Jesus, there as a great high priest at the right hand of power are the one who can uh, 
You are the one who can give us grace and mercy to help in our times of need. And Lord, we are needy this morning. We are needy. We want uh, to hear from you. We want to have our soul refreshed and encouraged. We want to be lifted up. Um, Lord, for any brethren in here this morning who are discouraged, that they would lift their eyes to you. See that their help, see that their help comes from you, the maker of heaven and earth. Um, and Lord Jesus, for those who don't know you, we pray they would again lift their eyes to you. You are the fountain of living water. You are the one who grants eternal life. You are the one in whom we find redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. And you is the only reason that man can hope truly and that they would lift their eyes to you. And that for the brethren in here this morning, perhaps that are just somewhere in between, um, Lord, we ask you again that they would lift their eyes to you, remind them afresh of who you are for them, of, of, of your purposes in their lives. And, um, and Lord, renew us all for your sake and glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so chapter 2, I'm going to read chapter 2, 1 through verse 8. And you guys can follow along. Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. And coming to him as to a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value, then, is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were also appointed." Powerful text there. The last couple of weeks we were dealing with chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, where Peter was appealing to the saints to long for the nourishment of the Word of God. He calls it the pure milk of the Word. This nourishment is what they desperately need, what we desperately need to grow unto salvation. You want to grow in your Christian life? You need to be people of the book. You need to be people who long for the Word of God. This is what you need to grow more and more into the image of Jesus Christ is the scriptures. This is what the Bible says about itself. That's an important point. You know, a lot of people say that Christians impose all kinds of ideas about the Bible on the Bible. Well, here's what the Bible says. The Bible says long for the Bible. The Bible says long for it because it is food. It is what you need. As Job said, he says that I've longed for your word and, 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 and taken heart to your word more than I have my necessary food. To Job, in some senses, he saw it as more vital than physical food. And Peter says it here. You long for it like babies. Babies need nourishment. They need milk to live. And so also we need the Word of God. May we never grow past our need and our longing for the Word of God, for the Scriptures. It's a life-giving power. And we will grow if we long for the Word. 
And we will grow unto salvation. And Peter says here that you will grow and, and long for the word if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. Peter assumes that they will certainly long for the Lord, long for the, the, the word of the Lord, if they've tasted the goodness of the Lord, tasted of his kindness, tasted of his grace. Once someone genuinely tastes the goodness and love of God in Jesus Christ, they're forever changed and they want more. Don't you want more? Don't you want to know the Lord Jesus more? Don't you want to experience his grace and kindness more and more? You know, that's what we will be experiencing forever in glory, right? Without any hindrances, without any sin, without any, without any uh, obstructions to that in our emotions or in our minds and our hearts or anything like that. Certainly here we still have this indwelling sin that still besets us. But, but the reality is we can taste and see that the Lord is good now. And Peter seems to think here that if you've tasted the kindness of the Lord, well then you will certainly want to long for His Word. Again, Peter is not calling these people to moralism. To a bunch of do's and don'ts. Right? He's calling them to Jesus Christ and His Word. That's where Peter pushes you. To a person. Right? That's what he does. He pushes you to a person. If you're going to long for a word, you're going to find the goodness of the Lord in that word. And that's why you go to the word. He's going to push you there. No earthly joy compares to the experiencing of, of tasting and seeing the Lord is good. So Peter thinks of the Christian life in terms of experience the grace of Christ, the kindness of Christ, in an ongoing way. And this will be fertilizer for us to grow more and more. Well, this next section... Verse 4 and following, Peter is still thinking of the Lord Jesus and will now begin to speak of Jesus as this secure, stable, foundational, precious possession on the one hand, or a stumbling block and an offense and one who will finally destroy all those who reject him on the other hand. Okay? So on the one hand, Jesus is precious, Jesus is costly, Jesus is foundational, Jesus is secure, he's the object of our faith. And on the other hand, if you reject him, if you don't know him, if you're not coming to him, shows that you are stumbling over him, and one day you will finally be doomed, as Peter says here in verse 8, destroyed. So let's start looking at verse 4 together. Right off the bat here, as Peter has told us, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord, he immediately goes into and coming to him as to a living stone which has been rejected. And coming to him. Again, just, just think. I want you guys to all think. This is Peter's, this is Peter's whole, I don't know, impetus whole idea of what it is to live the Christian life is coming to Jesus and coming to him as to a living stone. He assumes that if you've tasted the goodness of the Lord, you're going to be coming to him. Now, simple Webster's Dictionary defines coming as moving towards something, approaching something. Right? So Peter's saying as you're approaching the Lord, as you're coming to the Lord, as you're drawing near to the Lord, you draw near to one who's a living stone rejected by men. Now, throughout the Scriptures, man is summoned to come to the Lord, isn't he? He's summoned to come to the Lord. 
The implication is that man by nature is far away from the Lord, disconnected from the Lord, separate from the Lord. Listen to Isaiah 53. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each one has turned his own way. Right? Which is essentially what sin is. It's just going your own way rather than being a part of the fold of the Lord. Determining evil and good from your own mind. Determining your own course. Sin is not fundamentally murdering. It's not fundamentally stealing someone's stuff. It's fundamentally going your own way. It's why you can have a lot of really, really nice people that are living very, what would you say, put together lives, but they're just as lost as tyrannical dictators. Why? Because they're both going their own way. Their own way. Or again, in Isaiah, Behold, the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save, nor his ear so dull that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. He's made a separation. Well, I thought God was everywhere. Where he is? Well, he is. But in terms of your relationship with him, it is severed. You are separated. When God kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden, that was probably a literal thing, but also illustrating a very spiritual reality that we are cut off from the life of God in our souls. Spiritual death has taken place to the human race. That is why things are the way they are in this world. Make no mistake about it. This world is dead in sin, separated from their maker. The point is that all men who do not know Christ are cut off, separated, without hope, without God in the world, Paul says, going their own way. So much of the Old Testament prophets is taken up with appeals to Israel to what? Return. (laughs) Return to the Lord. Return to me. The whole concept of repentance is bound up with turning from sin, yes, but to the Lord. It's turning from sin to the Lord. Embracing Him by faith, living for Him, being restored to a right relationship and fellowship with the Lord through Jesus Christ. Listen to some of these texts that reveal God's heart for men to come. Isaiah 118. Come now, the Lord says, come now. And let us reason together, says the Lord. The Lord looks at this idolatrous, hypocritical people. And what does he say? He doesn't say, see you later, I'm done. At least not at this point in Isaiah. He says, come. Come now, let's reason together. Let's think about this now. You've got sin, and that sin is as scarlet. It's a blemish before my eyes. But if you come reason with me and you realize that your sin is scarlet and that you can turn from it and come to me, well then I'll make that scarlet sin as white as snow. Come now, let us reason together. Come to me. I've got the answers here. You don't. You're going your own way. Come now. Or Isaiah 2, 3, glorious text predicting the fact that men will come to the Lord says this, and many peoples will come and say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways, 
and that we may walk in his paths. You have all these people that come, and they come, and they come to the Lord, and they sit down, and they teach us. That's, that's what it is to become a Christian. You're done with your own ways, and you've come, and you've, you're going to sit down and learn now at his feet. You're his disciples. That's what it is to come. Isaiah 45, 27, God says, they will say of me, only in the Lord are righteousness and strength. That's that day when, when God will save. Men will come to him, Isaiah says, and all who are angry at him will be put to shame. When men come to him, we say the Lord is our righteousness and strength. We realize we have no strength. We have no righteousness in ourselves. But when we come to him, we see, ah, there's my righteousness. There's my strength. It's in the Lord. Isaiah 55, 1 through 3. God takes him, sort of takes on the role as this, um, as this merchant calling out into the marketplace of competing, uh, I don't know, competing fulfillment ideologies. And he looks at all of the, the, the world of men and all that they try to do to gain satisfaction and try and try to find meaning and purpose and fulfillment. And he calls out to them in this world and he says, ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. It's all free. Why do you spend your money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good. Delight yourself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me. Listen that you may live. And I will make an everlasting covenant with you. To be in covenant with God. Amazing thing. Where, ye, where he in his fullness is yours. And you are his. That's what it is to come to the Lord. I don't know what you thought about what Christianity is, but that's what it is. If you think it's anything else, you got it wrong. If you think it's about putting together prophecies, and you think it's about mapping out end time stuff, and you think it's about even just going to church, or you think about any of that, you've missed it 100%. It is about coming to Jesus. It's about coming to the Lord. Finding abundance in him, finding forgiveness in him, learning his ways, being in covenant with him. That's what it means. And thinking of Isaiah 55, you can hear Jesus in John 7 taking up that same, that same role here now as the one calling out to, to men to come. Listen, John 7, 37 through 39. Appealing to the crowds, he says, Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And John inserts a statement here, But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed him were to receive. For the Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Here, just like in Isaiah, the one who comes to Jesus comes to have their soul thirst assuaged and satisfied. 
And John gives us an insight into the fact that that those who have come to Jesus are those who have believed in him. And for those who have believed, they're the ones who now have the Spirit of God inside them, bursting forth with life from his living water. You have a new resource in you. It's in you. It's in every genuine believer. It's called the Spirit of the living God. And he has brought a life source into your soul now, as Jesus says in John 4, that will spring up to eternal life. We've got to stay in the Scriptures, don't we? Life is so mundane and boring. This is not. This reminds you, wait a minute, <laughs> wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm a new creation in Jesus Christ. I have the third person of the Trinity residing within me. Lord, help me see this, <laughs> right? Isn't that what we need to be doing on a day-to-day basis? Why does Peter want you to long for the Word? He wants you to long for the Word so that you'll remember what the Word says about you and what it says about Jesus Christ and about it, what it says about who you are in Christ, what you have in Christ. Whoever comes to me, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never thirst. Revelation twenty-two seventeen. 17, some similar appeals here are made that men should come to the Lamb. As Jesus says, he's returning soon. The Spirit and the church agree. They say, the Spirit and the bride say, come. See, you have to be so enamored with Jesus Christ that you're excited about the fact and you are eager for the fact that he will come. But if you are all entrenched in this world and you find more tinsel and glitter and glory and, and everything else in this world, you cannot agree with what the Spirit and the Bride are saying. You have to check your heart and keep your, keep your mind and heart fixated on Jesus Christ. He has to be the one, the desire of your souls. The Spirit and the bride say, come. Lord Jesus said, you're going to come. Come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who wishes to take the water of life without cost come. The Lord Jesus holds himself out as a fountain of living waters, the true fountain of life from which one may drink and live forever. Have you ever come to him? Do you know what that is? Do you know what it is to come to Jesus? Ask it another way. Are you alive in Jesus? Do you know what, do you know what it is? Can you relate to, to Paul when he says, all things are lost in, in, in view of the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord? Do you know what that is? Can you really say that? Oh, if you can, it's because you've come to him. It's because you've, you've, you've drank of this free, life-giving water. Have you come to him, or are you still going to spoiled springs and broken cisterns that can hold no water? You will not be satisfied or find life in anything else. No career, no relationship, no drug, no experience of 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 adventure, no amount of money can satisfy your souls. Only Christ has living water. Only Christ. That's it.
And for those of us who've come to Christ, we've tasted and seen he is good. And the amazing thing, can I say it again, is that it's free. That is the amazing thing. Come by without money and without cost. God doesn't need your money. He owns everything. He doesn't need your blood. As Steve always reminds us, he already got that. All you need is an open hand, or, or, or in this context, an open mouth of faith for him to fill it. Someone said one time, all you need is need. <laughs> all you need is to know you need him. And then turn from sin and cling to him. Sense that you are thirsty and desperate for his filling. Have you come to him? So Peter here is saying he just assumes that we've come to him. But I just, I just want us to just, I just wanted us to reflect a little bit. When you became a believer, you came to him. And every day after that, you must still come to him. Peter says, and coming to him. It's this ongoing coming to him. Longing for the word, tasting the Lord's goodness in the word is coming to Jesus. It's about knowing Jesus. It's about walking with Jesus. When you think about getting into the word, do you equate this with coming to Jesus? When you think about prayer, do you equate this with coming to Jesus? Becoming a Christian is not believing facts about Jesus. It's coming to Jesus. (laughs) That's what it is. Certainly facts are part of it. But they're what drive you to him. So whether it's turning from sin and repentance and and embracing the Lord Jesus in faith for the first time or coming to him in faith every day after we're born again, it's all about seeking to know Christ more, experiencing his grace and love. You know, James, uh, 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 James here, his version of this, his version is, is... Taken up in chapter 4, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. There's this drawing near. The writer of Hebrews says that we draw near to the throne of grace. Or we come to Jesus as our sympathetic high priest. Paul says he wants to know Christ's power and his sufferings. Because in these things he knows Christ more. Paul prays that, that we would increase, Colossians, increase in the knowledge of God. And that's not just, again, factual, although certainly not without truth. Peter will tell us in chapter 3 that Jesus Christ died that he might bring us to God. The cross is about opening the way for you to come to him. We have access to God because of the cross. Are you taking advantage of this access? (laughs) Jesus bought it for you with his own blood. Are you coming to him? I know I'm saying the same thing over and over and over, but I just want you to understand that. That is Christianity. It's coming to Jesus Christ. But we must understand that our Lord Jesus, our leader, as Peter is about to kind of unpack for us, is a rejected leader. He's a rejected leader. But he is a priceless possession. Rejected leader, priceless possession. Peter says that you come to him as to a living stone. 
which has been rejected by men, but is choice in the, and precious in the sight of God. So, Peter introduces this idea of Jesus being a living stone. And I had to make a decision here. Do I go ahead and start unpacking that? Or do I take you to the Old Testament texts that's deeply in his mind as he's saying all that he's saying? So I figured I would go to the Old Testament texts first, and then we'll come back and look at some of the others. So, so we'll make progress, and we'll jump around here in verse 4 through 8. Um, but I want us to look at some of the Old Testament texts, um, because it's from these Old Testament texts that, te- that Peter gives us instruction and exhortation. Um, so, in, so here's Peter. So Peter, Peter's reading Isaiah and the Psalms and expositing them to the people in Asia Minor. I'm reading Peter, expositing him to us at New Covenant. But see, so I'm doing what Peter did. If that makes sense. But you can get a sense of how Peter is preaching and writing his letter. He's, he's, he's deeply tethered to to the Old Testament. Again, these guys don't have independent thoughts in their head. This is not coming from them. This is stuff rooted in the Scriptures. Alright. So, Peter begins to express some teaching here that's rooted in the Old Testament. As, and, and he's, particularly this word stone comes up over and over and over in this passage. Verse 4, Jesus is called a living stone. Verse 5, we are living stones. Verse 6, precious uh, cornerstone, he lays in Zion a choice stone. Verse 7, the stone which the builders rejected became the very cornerstone. Verse 8, a stone of stumbling rock of a, and a rock of offense. So you can see over and over this idea of stone is in Peter's mind. Now, Peter is taking his, uh, his teaching here from primarily three Old Testament texts. The first is Isaiah 28, 16. So that's in verse 6. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious stone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. The second psalm is Psalm 118, the stone which the builders rejected. This became the very cornerstone. And the third is Isaiah 8:14, verse 8, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. So in this whole section here in verse 4 through 8, Peter has three Old Testament texts woven in all through it. And he's, all, he's teaching the church here in Asia Minor. Asia Minor. Um, he's teaching the church that these passages point to Jesus Christ, and he's going to bring out implications of all of his meditations on these texts. So I want to look at these three just a little bit, not, not comprehensively, but just a little bit, just so that we'll understand how Peter is exhorting and teaching his readers. Um, But suffice it to say that these three passages about Jesus show Jesus to be a promised, foundational, rejected, tested, precious, stumbling, and offensive stone. And Peter has a lot to teach us in light of these things. But let's understand a little bit of the background. All right, so Isaiah 28. Isaiah 28 is this first one in verse 6. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, He who believes in Him will not be disappointed. So I'll just read this to you. You can just listen on. Isaiah 28. So God here pronouncing woes to the drunkards of Ephraim. 
proclaiming a certain judgment. And then in verse 14, he speaks to the rulers of Jerusalem. And in verse 14, he says, Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, O scoffers, who rule this people who are in Jerusalem. Because you have said, We have made a covenant with death, and with Sheol we have made a pact. The overwhelming scourge will not reach us when it passes by. For we have made falsehood our refuge, and have concealed ourselves with deception. What's interesting about this passage? Well, number one, he says the, ru- the rulers in Jerusalem are scoffers. Scoffers are people who can't be taught, right? Pe- scoffers are people who are uh, wise in their own eyes. That's who scoffers are. And these are the rulers in Jerusalem. These are the religious leaders. These are the politicians of the day. And these men are scoffers. And, and Isaiah puts words in their mouth, so to speak, here in verse 15. I don't think that they said this, obviously. But he puts words in their mouth as if they basically did because of their, their actions. And he says, because you have said we have made a covenant with death. Well, certainly they haven't gone and said, I'm really glad we made this covenant with death. That's not what he's saying. But what he's saying is their actions have indicated that they have made this covenant with death. And, and with Sheol, they have made a pact. The overwhelming scourge will not reach us when it passes by, for we have made falsehood our refuge and have concealed our, ourselves with deception. See, they were, they were concerned about the onslaught of opposing nations, and they thought that alliances with other pagan nations would get them out of hot water and would protect them. But God says, this is a covenant with death. You trust in men, you trust in anything other than the Lord, it's a covenant with death. It's deception. But in light of this, in light of this, and this happened over and over in Israel, where Israel would reach out to to pagan nations for support. In verse 16, God says this, Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone, for the foundation, firmly placed. And he who believes will not be disturbed. I will make justice the measuring line and righteousness the level. Then hail will sweep away the refuge of lies and the waters will overflow the secret place. So what's going on here? Well, here this, this, this whole passage here is about the Lord holding out prospects of divine judgment and hope, as is usual in the prophets. In the context, Judah's made this covenant with death probably making alliances with other nations that, that Judas forged to protect themselves. They've chosen political strategy over faith in the Lord, relying on men to preserve them. God calls this deception and falsehood. And why? Well, because of what they claim. What do they claim? They claim that they're God's people, right? And yet they are trusting in men. They are deceived. God proclaims that He will take the initiative in laying a secure, stable foundation stone that will be tested, extremely valuable, and the object of the faith of his true people. In other words, this unbelief and deception of the rulers of Judah is going to mean certain destruction for the city of Judah. So what God will do in light of that is not say, okay, done. No, he takes the initiative. He lays down his own structure. He takes upon himself 
to lay down an impenetrable, firmly established structure. Something that will last and something that will be the object of his people's faith. That's why Isaiah says, he who believes in it will not be disappointed. Meaning that this work will never disappoint or bring to shame. Believe in this work because it lasts forever. You know, Solid construction. Sorry, I had to bring that in there. It was too perfect. It wasn't in my notes. Just revelation. But that's what the Lord is all about. He's all about that. He's all about making something last. And if it's going to happen, it's because he does it. Right? We have it from the very first pages of Genesis. Right? Even down to them trying to put fig leaves around themselves. God's like, here's some skins. Right? Then in Genesis chapter 3, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman. And it's God who takes the initiative to save And here it is again. Judah's falling apart with unbelief, scared to death because of inbending doom. What do they do? They trust outside alliances, not the Lord. And so what's going to happen? Well, the the city will be destroyed. They will be invaded. It will be rubble. And yet the Lord says, but I'm going to make a work that will last. So because Peter was thoroughly knowledgeable of Isaiah, and because Christ is the key to interpretation of the Old Testament to Peter, if we go back to Peter now, Peter equates this cornerstone with the Lord Jesus himself. Jesus is the foundation stone of God's invincible work of rebuilding a house for his name. And as it is in the ancient world, these houses were only as secure as the cornerstone. It both, it both sort of gave a good plumb line, and it also gave a perfect support. And this is Jesus. These structures are only as stable as their keystones. And Jesus is this cornerstone. And the, the text says, and whoever believes in Jesus will not be disappointed. Isn't that wonderful? He will never disappoint us. Never disappoint us. He will never fail to fulfill our hopes or expectations. Never. Sometimes it's so hard to see in this life, isn't it? So hard to see. You know, as, as a new Christian, when you come to Christ, at least for me, I'll just speak for myself, I mean, it was amazing. I mean, I never knew trees were so green and the sky was so blue and everything else. And this world just was opened up to me, just the reality that this is God's world and I'm in it. And Jesus Christ is the Lord of glory. And as time goes on, you begin to feel the pressures of the world. And all the things that you first maybe taste and saw you thought would continue, they don't. Not fully. Here and there. But not fully. And, and so what happens is you begin to question and think, what, what's going on here? Um, my hopes of what I thought this was going to be is definitely different. I mean, I can remember being in my dorm room just asking myself the question, is it always going to be this hard? Like in my head. 
And you just kind of wonder, like, where's the power? Where are you at? Are you going to disappoint me? And this text exists. It exists so that you will know. Hang on. This is, this is the text you hold. Everyone who believes in him will not be disappointed. And honestly, when we stand before him in glory, that's, it's going to be it's going to be shameful that we thought he would disappoint us, won't it? It will be. We'll be like, man, how could I ever have doubted you? But that is the reality. We face that, don't we? We face it. But Isaiah and Peter and God Almighty tell you, you believe in Jesus, you will not be disappointed. You might have your head cut off, but you won't be disappointed one day. He'll catch it on the other side, right? As one preacher said. You will not disappoint. You will not be put to shame in anything. No. In contrast, Jesus will one day come back and in front of the watching world, unbelieving world, they will be put to shame while you are honored by him. I don't know what all that looks like, but that's crazy. But that's what he says. What does he say in Revelation chapter 2? Is it, the, is it the church of Sardis? All those people who said that they're Jews and they are not, they're a synagogue of Satan, they're going to come bow down at your feet one day. You will not be disappointed. You have to understand this when times are hard. You will not be disappointed. But you have to hold on to Jesus. You have to believe in Jesus. And everyone who does will not be put to shame. You may receive shame in this life by believing in Him, but worldwide shame is coming. All right. I'm going to stop. I'm going to stop there. And we'll look at Psalm 118 next week. So Christianity is what? It's coming to Jesus. That's what it is. And Peter... He takes us to Isaiah to see that God does this amazing work in Jesus. And of course, we know how God builds this house that we're going to talk about in subsequent weeks here, that this cornerstone is crucial for. How does he do it? Well, he does it by death, right? God sends his son into this world, a sinless, sinless savior. And he walks among us. And he's misrepresented, misrepresented, mistreated, beaten, scourged, and hung on a tree by the rulers and the people of Israel. And he's a rejected man. And yet in that very rejection, (laughs) in that very rejection, God is doing his foundational work to build a house for his name. Because it's through that death, through that atonement, that bloody, awful, horrific sacrifice (laughs) that God builds his church. Because as those sins are forgiven and access is open to God, those people come to the mountain of the house of the Lord. 
in faith and love. And so that's what Peter is getting at. Peter is thinking about these passages where God is doing work, God is building a house, Jesus Christ is this rejected stone, but this cornerstone. And this is God's work. And this is the one to whom we come. And so we'll keep on going next week and we'll look a little bit more of these, some of these older Old Testament passages. And by the end of it, I hope that, you know, you could have yourself gone to these passages and made exhortations to your brethren based on these wonderful texts. And I just want to put a plug in here for reading the Old Testament. Reading the Old Testament with Christ as the key. Um, for all the New Testament writers, they look at the passage, at look, they look at passages in the Bible with Christ as the key. Not under every little stone per se, but in these stones there are. <laughs> so, and we'll talk a little bit more about that later, but um, if you don't know Jesus Christ, if you've never come to him, um, life will disappoint you. Um, and you'll be scrambling from one thing after another to try to fulfill that longing. And the reality is there isn't one. There is nothing under the, under the sun that you can find final, lasting satisfaction. If there was, I, I think I would have found it because I think I looked just about everywhere and it wasn't there. And ultimately, if you don't know Jesus, by the time you die, you'll be disappointed. You, you'll be utterly shamed and disappointed forever in hell. And that's the reality. That's what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches you will be cut off from the Lord, justly so, because you decided to live your own way. You decided your, that you wanted your sin more than you wanted the Lord Jesus. But this morning, you can return to your maker. You can come to him. You can come to him. He holds out these promises of judgment and hope because he wants to hold out hope to you. And that's a beautiful, wonderful, gracious God. So let's pray, and, um, and I'll ask the Lord to do this for you. If, he, if this hasn't happened to you yet, I'll ask that the Lord move in your heart this morning. So let's pray together. Father, thank you for this precious word. Thank you, Lord, for this precious stone, this cornerstone. Um, and Lord, I just pray that we would continue to trust in you. This world is certainly, Lord, just seemingly coming unglued. But we know that believing in you, trusting in you, holding fast your word will never disappoint. Lord, one day you will fulfill our expectations far above and beyond all that we can ask or think. We will be with you. And you, will, you and your son will be the light of that city, that place. The glory of God will shine forth there. We won't even need the sun. And Lord, help us to, to have that glory in our hearts. Pray that that glory would be shining in the hearts of the Afghani Christians. Really of all Christians, Lord, that are living under the, just the pressure of tyranny. Those prospects, Lord, where each day they don't know if it will be their last, as one pastor said, in Afghanistan, we might be seeing Jesus sooner than we thought. Lord, pray that you would just shed your love abroad in their hearts. You'd shed, shed your love abroad in our hearts. Lord, you'd move us to just be so taken with your goodness and grace that we would just be compelled to tell others 
of your excellencies, of what you've done in Jesus, that you've done a lasting work, a sure work, a work that will last forever, and that they would be a part of that kingdom that will never end. Lord, help us to be these kinds of people, that that just because of who you are and who you've made us to be and what we've tasted, Lord, we would be, we'd be people to proclaim to others. And that's where you're going, we know, in Peter. And, um, but Lord, we pray for it now. And Lord, for those who don't know you in here, pray that you would just speak to their soul. Say to them, I am your salvation. And Lord, that they would respond in faith and repentance. In Jesus' name, amen.